my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Howdy, hey, and hello there. Welcome to another episode of Weird Finance, where we try to help you feel a little bit less weird about money, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Paco De Leon, and on this week's episode, I'm chatting with Madeline Pendleton. The reality of our world is that it simply isn't fair. And no matter how hard we try to make it so, it might not ever be. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't aim for it. This week's guest is Madeline Pendleton. She's known for starting a company where every worker gets paid the same including her. While she might be an example of exceptionalism, her story goes beyond individual triumph. It's a beacon for all those navigating the complex waters of finance in unconventional ways. I hope Madeline can remind you that we all struggle with finding our agency against forces we can't control. And that sometimes we just have to rage against the machine and exercise whatever power we have to imagine and build a more equitable future. Please enjoy my conversation with Madeline. Madeline, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of Weird Finance. I am so thrilled to be chatting with you and for us to be sharing your story with all of our listeners today. I am so happy to be here and thank you so much for allowing me to talk about it. Of course, of course. So I want to just jump right in here and help people understand the Madeline sitting before me today. So I'm going to give you the highlights and then you can fill in some of the rest of the picture here. So you run a rag sourced vintage clothing company called Tunnel Vision, and you are the owner and you also get paid the same amount of your employees. You've become Gen Z's Aunt Madeline on TikTok, telling your story of how you basically clawed your way out of poverty And you've recently taken those stories and you've written a book called I Survived Capitalism and All I Got Was This Lousy T-Shirt. So before we double click and dig into all of those things, would you mind just sharing with our listener a little bit about who you are, what your upbringing was like, and how that shaped your relationship to money? 
Yeah. So one of the small things is that the company does rag house source vintage, but we also do produce our own new clothing collections. So just wanted to put that in there as well. But yeah, I am from Fresno, California. And uh, when you tell people you're from Fresno, California, they usually respond by saying, I'm sorry. So that gives you an idea of the cultural kind of weight of Fresno, California in the uh, national zeitgeist, I suppose. And if you're not familiar with Fresno, uh, the way I like to explain it is like it's California's New Jersey. Or it's like if Arizona and Florida had a baby and that baby was a city. This is kind of the vibe of where I grew up. I would say I co-sign on those descriptions, yes. Oh, great. I love somebody who's been to Fresno. I'm like the unofficial Fresno ambassador now. The thing about Fresno that I think is really unique is that growing up there, I did not think that I was poor. I thought that I was middle class. And this is something I even say in the book. I feel like even today, if I told my mom like, oh, well, you know how we grew up, you know, when I was poor, she would say that I was being dramatic. So I think that's like a really interesting thing because when you grow up with less resources than your peers, I think you notice it. But when you grow up in a place where there's a lot of poor people around you all the time, it just feels very normal. And that kind of is the case with Fresno. So Fresno is divided in half by the street, Shaw, and everybody there knows it. We used to have a punk band called South of Shaw because if you lived south of Shaw, you just weren't doing so well. There's a lot of poverty there. It's very widespread and it's very normalized. And there's also a lot of substance abuse issues. There's a methamphetamine epidemic. And these are all just very normal things you grow up around when you grow up uh, kind of in that environment. So uh, it actually took me leaving Fresno to realize that I was poor. And that was like a major shock to me. I didn't realize that. And I remember having a conversation with somebody on the internet where they they had come on this like this old website that was called Formspring where you could ask people questions. And they'd come on my Formspring when I was like 22 years old. And they said, you know, I'm really afraid to drive on the freeway. Do you have any advice for me? And I said, oh, you know, people drive on the freeway all the time. Just think about the person you know who seems like they can't do anything in life. And then ask yourself, does that person drive a car on the freeway? They probably do. So if they can do it, you can do it. Just drive your car on the freeway. And I remember somebody responded and was like, the privilege of this answer, you must have a brand new reliable car. You don't know what it's like to drive like an old beat up 2002 Chrysler on on the freeway. And I was like, oh, I actually drive a 1997 Saturn and uh, (laughs) the radiator's broken and I have to fill it with water because it overheats every 30 miles. And this like sparked all these questions. And I remember people being like, why don't your parents just buy you a new car? And I was like, my dad doesn't even have a car. Why would he buy me a car? Like when I go to town, I pick him up to take him to family events. Like he has a bicycle. Like I'm so confused. And I really think that was the moment that I realized like, oh, oh, the way I grew up is not the way a lot of other people grew up, you know? So it's an interesting experience. I think it's really interesting because your concept of what's normal is so like shaped by your environment and your surroundings. So everybody I knew grew up like me. One of my friends was even like, oh, I thought your family was rich because you guys like at one point lived in a like house, like not an apartment with your grandparents, which I did live in an apartment with my grandparents for a lot of my childhood. And then at one stage, you know, I got to move into a house. So all my friends were like, you're the rich one. (laughs) And then, you know, the house got foreclosed on by the bank and all of our furniture got repossessed because it turns out it was all on this like layaway plan. And you know, it all kind of fell apart. And so you have these like experiences in your childhood that feel just kind of like, yeah, that's just how life goes, man. This is what happens. And then sometimes it takes you entering like a different environment to realize everything you thought you knew about money and the way the world worked was wrong. And that's kind of what I did. Yeah. So as an adult, I realized all the markers I had for how money worked, what wealth was, it was so far different than the reality that everybody else was existing in. And that's when I really kind of figured out that I had to teach myself how money worked and I had to figure out how not to be a jerk while doing it. Yeah, that's always a thing that I feel like I'm battling with on a regular basis where it's like, how do I continue to be ethical? How do I have these conversations that are helpful to people while recognizing that there's so much that's outside of our control? It's actually kind of like the hubris that we go walk, like we walk around outside thinking that we do have you know, control over our externalities or over our environment. But I mean, Madeline, from the outside looking in, you seem to have achieved like the quote unquote American dreaming dream. You're a business owner, you're a homeowner, and you seem to be thriving under conditions that 
don't want you to thrive, right? So there's also like baked into this idea that the myth of American exceptionalism that's required to achieve the American dream. And so I'm curious, do you see yourself as exceptional? And do you think that that is what's required for people to survive in this current system? I really love this question, actually, because I always say that I am like a conservative Republican's dream come true. Like, grew up poor, was really like performed very well in school, went to these very underfunded schools where there were gang fights on campus every day, you know, very rough kind of neighborhoods. And then I graduated high school early. I was valedictorian. I was captain of the debate team. And then I went to community college, right, for two years. I was 16. That's all I could afford. And then I transferred to a private for-profit college because nobody in my family knew how college worked. And I totally got scammed by one of those like for-profit college kind of, you know, like money-making schemes, but I didn't know it at the time. Still managed to get my bachelor's from that and somehow get this like really coveted internship with a huge company in design in my field right out of school. And then the Great Recession hit. Literally the year I graduated, we were in the middle of the Great Recession and it totally threw everything in my life off course. And, you know, people say that millennials, my generation, never recovered from the Great Recession. And I, like most of my peers around that time, ended up doing a lot of gig work, a lot of freelance work, and building this really unstable foundation. So I think in some ways, you could look at my story and think that there's something exceptional there, right? Because not everybody graduates high school early. Not everybody is valedictorian. But when I look back, anything I ever did that was maybe even a little bit special or different, didn't get me anywhere. It didn't help me because I ended up in the exact same boat when the Great Recession came around as all of my friends who didn't go to college, who maybe even dropped out of high school. We were all in the exact same position. So if anything, what that experience showed me is that the idea that if you're just hardworking enough, if you're just special enough, somehow everything in life's going to work out for you, that really did not manifest for my generation, for anybody in my generation, including me. And I went from being this kind of overachiever to being a person who really understood kind of the limits of what's in your control, really seeing that I, you know, I am a victim of my government's economic policy in a lot of different ways. There is no way I can just bootstrap my way individually out of the 2008 Great Recession. Like this is not in my power to do as a 20-something who just graduated, just got a degree. And so I don't know. I like to think about the myth of American exceptionalism because I think a lot of people do believe if they just work hard enough, if they're just smart enough, that they're going to be the one that that fixes it all. And and yeah, really what I realized is that working really, really, really hard, you know, two people can work equally as hard and end up in different places. A lot of why I performed well in school was luck, honestly, or curriculum that was geared towards white students, even in a predominantly not white school. And I'm a white person. So that helped me succeed. So really what I came to understand as I started to deconstruct the things I thought were my own successes is that those were systemic influences as well. And that's when I really started to realize that like everything about my life was influenced by the systems around me, which doesn't mean I had no personal accountability, but it meant that the things I could do, the things I could control were far, far smaller uh, than I had ever thought. So Yeah, I guess if you want these very basic things that I think every single person should be entitled to, which is stable housing, housing you own without having to pay a landlord, you know, an exorbitant amount of money every month that just goes up and up and up while wages stagnate, or like a job that just gives you as much money as you need to have a good life, which I realized is what most people want. Most people don't even want to be rich. They just want to be able to like buy groceries and have health insurance, like these very, very basic things that we all should have. Like you shouldn't have to be exceptional to obtain those things. Those should be the bare minimum. And the people who are in some ways what we would consider exceptional, brilliant people who grow up maybe in communities that are underfunded, underserved, they will never even get to see the fruits of their talents play out. They will, many of them never get to go to MIT, even if they have like a knack to be a brilliant engineer. You know, there's all these people who have these innate special skills and it doesn't matter. It doesn't get you anywhere. So yeah, I think the thing that we as culture really need to pay attention to and try to deconstruct is this idea that like special people make it big. And if you're struggling, it's because you just weren't special enough. And that's a bummer for you, but looks like that's just how, you know, the cookie crumbles. And I think like, that's really the thing that in my life now, I really try to push back against like being special got me nothing, got me nowhere. 
being special, quote unquote, was aided by my privilege in a lot of ways. And now, you know, I just want to quote one of my friends. We all just want to have a nice life, you know? Yeah, definitely. That's something I've been thinking a lot about myself lately. And I don't know if it's because I'm getting older and just the cliche of getting older is like, you do really just want to enjoy the simple things. Like, I don't want to be stressed out over bullshit. I don't want to have to worry about avocados becoming more expensive. I just want to be able to, you know, hang out with my wife and put on a dinner party with my friends and crack some jokes and listen to music and enjoy the sun shining on my face. That's really what it's all about. And yeah, it seems like there's so many things that are in between that simple inner peace. And so what's your advice, Aunt Madeline? (laughs) Even though you're sitting here saying that you are a product of systems that have, you know, given you privilege in certain ways, although in many ways it hasn't, how do we find our agency in, in these moments of feeling completely hopeless about the economy and our finances? I know that's a big question. I mean, it is a big question, but it also is why I wrote the book, because I feel like it took me years to figure out how much I really could control my financial reality and like my economic destiny. Uh, I realized pretty early on, thanks to that 2008 recession, right, that class mobility in the United States was a myth. It's, it's increasingly obvious to everybody that you're not able to transcend the economic reality you were born into without a lot of luck. We're talking a lot of luck. So yeah, then how do you live a good life? It really does come down to the very small things you can control. And it's hard to tell people there are small things they can change in their lives because you don't want to sound bootstrappy and you want to be sympathetic to everybody's experience. And I think we see people kind of talk about this on social media a lot with like, kind of special treat culture, you know, it's like, oh, I'm broke and my credit card's maxed out and I have no savings, but I'm going to go get myself like a special treat every day. I'm going to go get myself the coffee. I'm going to get myself the matcha. And you don't want to look at somebody and be like, that's why you're poor, sweaty, because it's not. They were poor before or after the coffee. The coffee is not. That $5 coffee is not making or breaking their entire reality, even if they buy one every single day all year. Like that is not enough to change your economic reality. So you don't want to fall into that level of like minutia with what you can control. But the thing I found that was helpful to me was to really take a look at my priorities and what brought me joy. You know, like what is worth it? So for me personally, I realized that the little special cup of coffee didn't actually bring me that much more joy than making coffee at my house. That was just a personal decision. But, you know, the thing I really love, this is like my like, oh, all the money in the world I could make would go to this. I love going to a restaurant, (laughs) like just the act of going to a restaurant. I'm like, what luxury, Mm -hmm. what service? I could sit at a restaurant and dine. And just like realizing that I'm like, oh, this is a small thing I can control. If I have $20 extra for a whole month when I started budgeting, when I started trying to pay attention to my own personal finances and I really broke everything down. When I, you know, rebudgeted, recut through everything, paid attention to how I was spending every single dollar, every single dime, what I realized is that it could be a way for me to prioritize the things that made the most of a difference in my life to me and my overall happiness. And it is small and it is kind of pathetic when you think about it. You're like, my agency comes down to $20 of disposable income a month and what I do with it. But when you kind of realize that, hey, everything else is outside of my control, I'm doing the best I can, it kind of, there is an element of freedom in knowing like all I can control is this 20 bucks and I'm going to try to maximize how much pleasure, how much joy this brings me. And once I started doing that, I will say there were some, there were some demonstrable differences in my life. It didn't change my overall material conditions, right? But I will say that budgeting and paying attention to things at that really small level did help me pay off my debt at least. And that alleviated a lot of my stress and that improved my quality of life. So you know, the little moves you can make, it, it's hard to toe the line between being like, okay, this is such a finite amount of money in a bigger picture of like poverty and need and lacking of resources and poor resource distribution. But at the same time, there are little things we can do to make our own personal lives a little better. And that's why I call it capitalism survival skills. And I call it that in the book. It's like, you're not going to be able to fight capitalism on your own, right? You're not going to probably be able to change the fact that the CEO of the top 350 fortune companies here in the US makes like an average of $22 million a year, including stock options and bonuses. You can't change that. 
you might not even be able to change how much your boss pays you. You might go in and ask for a raise and your boss might laugh at you or be like, no, there's no money, even though you saw there were record profits happening. But you can change, you know, a little bit here and there about where you spend your pennies and your dimes. And it can help you survive the conditions of capitalism maybe a little bit better. So, you know, I think the the key to trying to just be happy is to be super, super aware of the things you can control and the things you can't and realize that money, like anything else, is a tool and it can be a tool to help you carve out the life you want. And if you're a little bit creative, you might realize that the things you thought you needed to have a happy life actually aren't that exorbitant at all or are more achievable. Like you were saying, like, I just want to have a dinner party with my wife. It's like, okay, you could do that. That's something doable. You know, you can figure out a budget to do that. And once you realize that and like, just make a point to include that in your life, those little things that make you happy, you know, you, it's, it's almost revolutionary. You're like, I'm, I'm carving out this little bit of joy in a system that wants me to be miserable all the time. I appreciate everything you're saying and I'm snapping along and I'm co-signing because sometimes it feels ridiculous to think like, okay, somehow I have this platform, this podcast, and I'm, you know, the point of it is to help people feel a little less weird about money, one conversation at a time. Ultimately, you know, my goal is to try to put stuff out there that helps people suffer less. And the more I just try to like put that idea under a microscope, the simpler the ideas of how to do that are like taking a deep breath or going for a walk. It sounds so ridiculously silly to think that that is what can help improve people's conditions, but it kind of seems that way. I've been asking a lot of people who are, you know, coming on the podcast how to answer this hard question. And a lot of them boil down to that, like, you know, getting enough sleep, drinking water, eating nutrients, nutrient dense food and hanging out with your community. So all of that is a long-winded way to say thank you. So I was browsing on your TikTok recently and I, I saw that you were criticizing this idea of the scarcity mindset in the Western world. You say that a lot of people profit off of making you think there are not enough resources to go around. So instead of holding people in power accountable, we're busy competing with each other. Now, in reading your book, it seems like you've always questioned the idea of whether scarcity is real or manufactured by the systems that govern our lives. First, I just want to make sure that you agree that my assessment of your philosophies is correct. But I also want to know, how did you become this way? Like, why have you always had this philosophy that there's enough, especially considering the environment you grew up in? Well, I think that is, first of all, a spot on assessment of how I view the world. We do have enough. And I think that maybe growing up, like as a child, certainly it was hard to understand. It was hard to understand why some people like my family, you know, we had to live with my grandma on and off for most of my life, or or we got evicted from apartments in the middle of the night by like the sheriff's apartment sometimes. So you see these things and you're like, okay, there's definitely things I do not have. And you look at other people and you're like, well, they have things. So maybe there is just not enough to go around. But I would say by the time I was in junior high, I started getting just really into punk rock. Like my dad was a punk rocker in the eighties and it's just something that I fell into. And a lot of the punk rock from the eighties was in the middle of the Reagan era, you know? So the, the lyrics to these songs really were talking about the economic policies of our government or our government's approach to like imperialism around the world. And just even through those song lyrics, you can really see like, okay, our government has enough money because they're spending all of this money to wage secret wars in other countries, to fund military operations. And then, you know, by the time September 11th happened in 2001, I was in high school. And that's when I really started to kind of dig in and be like, why did this happen? What's the backstory that caused this huge political event to occur on U.S. soil? And when you started to dig into that and see what the United States military had been up to, like in the Middle East, in multiple countries for decades, what the CIA had been doing there, and you see like, this is so much money. There's so many resources being spent to move people around a chessboard like pawns in this huge game. And the game, the goal of the game is literally just to uphold capitalism and wealth in the United States. Like the stated goal of the CIA is to make sure like socialism doesn't spread around the world, right? That's always been their goal. So you see the government is spending so much money 
on these these acts of violence and these acts of brutality. And it's an easy jump, you know, when you're 14 and angry, right? To be like, well, that money could be spent on us. What if we didn't? What if we didn't use it to bomb people in other countries? What if we minded our own business? What if we fed hungry people? I walk by hungry people on the street every day, just walking to school or when I take the city bus to class, like, what if that money was used on this instead? And that's even not having a really detailed understanding of how much money it was. Right now, when you look at the U.S. military budget, for example, it's egregious. It's it's wild. I think like the current budget is in the $800 billion range stated. However, it ends up being over $1 trillion because it's not just the Defense Department's budget. Other departments, like the Energy Department, parts of their budgets also support the military. So it ends up working at this like over $1 trillion a year. And then, you know, you start looking into figures like, well, how much would it cost to end homelessness in uh, the United States? And a lot of people put the figure at around $20 billion per year. And when you look at that as a percentage of our over $1 trillion military budget, you're like, this is, this is nominal. This is what, like 1%? Like, this is so small. And then you look at the cost to end U.S. hunger, for example, $25 billion a year is the estimation there. And you compare that to the U.S. military budget. And the more you kind of learn, the more you realize that there is so much of everything. And we are just choosing to prioritize violence and destruction and imperialism to uphold the few wealthy, right? Rather than taking care of our people. And when you think about like tax money, for example, I know a lot of like Republicans or conservatives will be like, oh, my tax dollars. But when I think about how my tax dollars respond, it makes me angry because why would I pay money to a government that's supposed to provide a social safety net and a support system and keep me safe, right? If they're not going to do that, if they're if they're going to use it to bomb children in other countries. So I think like, yeah, the more you kind of pull at the thread of like, well, where's that money going? What are they doing with it? Why don't we have enough to end this? Well, this actually seems really manageable. These people have a plan and this isn't that much money. Then you kind of see just it's the distribution that's the issue. And I think maybe the TikTok you were talking about, I was talking about the cheese caves in the United States. Is that the one? I think that was part two. The part one you were talking about was food waste. Yeah. Okay. Food waste. So food waste is a great example of this. And some people know this and they think it's like a funny little fact. But yeah, the United States has such a food surplus, like 30 to 40% of food production in the United States is just discarded. It's just waste. And on top of that, the uh, country has such a food surplus that the government maintains, like, I don't want to call them cheese bunkers, but they're cheese bunkers. (laughs) Secret cheese caves full of cheese. We're talking like millions of pounds of cheese and not just cheese, frozen blueberries, frozen strawberries, like billions of pounds of poultry. And this is all just sitting frozen or refrigerated in government facilities while, you know, 10% of the U.S. population deals with food insecurity. It's just, yeah, the numbers, unfortunately, support that level of skepticism and concern. And yeah, it's one of those things. The more you look into it, you're like, oh, this is bad. It's the distribution that's the issue, not the production. Because people are more productive now in society than ever before, thanks to technology. We're able to do everything so much faster, everything so much more. And a lot of like economists and sociologists have looked at this and said like, hey, theoretically, everything should be getting less expensive, not more expensive, because everything's getting so streamlined. We have so much technology to help us do things like food production, like clothing production, for example. And instead of getting cheaper and easier, things are getting more expensive and it's not going in the pocket of the workers. The workers' wages aren't the one, the thing going up, right? It's the CEO profits. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you having such a grounded perspective when it comes to, you know, abundance and, you know, how to look at that idea. I think there's a lot of folks who are like, I don't know, just feel abundant and therefore you will be more abundant. But I appreciate that you're looking at these hard figures and drawing distinct parallel lines between really, yeah, the issue is at the at the end of the day, distribution. We're incredibly productive and only becoming more productive. We have large language models that can write silly emails if we needed it to. And that doesn't mean, I think what that means is unfortunately, we're going to be sending out more emails. <laughs> We're going to be even more productive. And yeah, it would be lovely to see that productivity and the benefits of it distributed more equally and more evenly. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. 
Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, Jamie, congrats on your uh, recent raise. That is awesome. You know, um, I've been thinking about asking for one, too, but honestly, I don't know how to approach it. Can you give me some advice? Of course, Taylor. The key is to be well-prepared and showcase your value to the company. One thing that really helped me was keeping a record of all of my wins, successful projects that impact revenue, and emails from happy clients. Oh, that's a great idea. Wait, but how do I present all of that information to my boss? Show the receipts. You can simply print out emails from customers or folks at the company with any positive feedback. Or you can lay out the metrics and data that show how you've made an impact. Okay, got it. Uh, But what if my boss is hesitant to give me a raise? Don't be discouraged. Be prepared to negotiate and show that you've done your research. Know the industry standard for your role and be ready to discuss why you deserve a raise based on your performance and the value you bring. And if they still don't give it to you, ask them exactly what you'd need to do in order to get one in the next three or so months. Thanks, Jamie. I feel more confident about asking for a raise now. I'll start keeping track of my accomplishments and client feedback right away. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. Weird Finance. Weird Finance. Weird Finance. Weird Finance. I mean, but I have hope. There's people like you in the world who is... You're not only, you know, writing a book and on TikTok educating people about the issues. I mean, you're really putting your money where your mouth is. Tunnel Vision is such a beautiful example of a community putting people over profit and really 
championing change in the world. So can you just tell me the story of, of why you started Tunnel Vision and how did you arrive at this current business model where everyone is paid the same? Yeah. So, okay. After the Great Recession, I mentioned that I fell into like a lot of gig work and freelancing and it was very, very difficult to find steady employment. So I actually started a business with two friends and it was not Tunnel Vision. It was called The Good Shop. And I remember meeting with a small business advisor. They're part of SCORE. So it's people who are in your field who are now retired, who like to give advice to people who want to start small businesses. So we had this partnership of the three of us and we're all going to do equal work and run this clothing store. Kind of same setup I have now, but a physical store. So vintage and also my own designs and their designs as well. The other two people I started the business with. And I remember the SCORE advisor was like, you guys need a really good partnership agreement. And we were kind of naive. We were like, no, 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 we're going to be fine. Like we're friends. It's all going to be good. Um, And anybody who's probably tried to do a group project of any kind can figure out how the story ended. Uh, It was not fine. We definitely did need a partnership agreement and it all fell apart catastrophically. So when that happened, I uh, packed up my bags. This was in San Francisco and I moved to LA and I was like, I need a fresh start. And LA has more jobs than San Francisco does, point blank. I need, I need work. So when I got to LA, unfortunately, jobs in apparel design, which was my skill, right? The thing I'd gone to college for, were all paying minimum wage. And I knew I couldn't afford to pay my student loans on minimum wage. I couldn't pay rent on minimum wage. Moving from San Francisco to LA, now I needed a car for a lot of jobs. A lot of jobs said you need a car for this job. So I had to get a car. So, you know, in San Francisco, when the 1997 Saturn finally died, I was just like, public transportation for me, yay. So it was a big shift. It was a big shift to see that workplaces were requiring that you provide your own transportation and the bus wouldn't do it. So I was looking at all of these jobs and um, realized that I would not be able to get a job in apparel design. So instead, I got a job in marketing. And it was the first good job I think I ever had. It was a good, in my head, it was a good job. It paid $50,000 a year and I got health insurance. And it was hard fought. I had to negotiate for that $50,000. I felt like such an adult when I did it. I was like, this is a good job. And then I soon realized that the owner of the company was, I'm going to say, unpredictable for legal reasons. I think that's the best word I can use to describe the environment. And I kind of knew. I was like, all right, you got to expect to get fired. What are you going to do? Because you're going to lose this job. Everybody loses this job. You're going to lose this job. So, you know, I was trying to do more freelance work, more gig work. Nothing was hitting. Nothing was sticking. Everything was hard. Sometimes you would do uh, freelance work and then the company would just go out of business. So they'd be like net 30. So you do the work, you'd submit it, you'd submit your invoice. And then 30 days later, the company just wouldn't exist anymore. So anybody who's done freelancing or gig work knows it's just, it's a nightmare. It's a logistical nightmare. You have no protections as a worker. You also have to set aside not only your own taxes, but additional tax money. It's like a 15%, I think, self-employment tax on top. It's a nightmare. And I had a friend who was in the exact same position as me. And we together decided to start another business, just like the business I had started in San Francisco, but online only. So when I started Tunnel Vision, I did have a partner. And after a year or so, she left. She wanted to do other things and we're still friends and she is delightful. So for a long time, the business then was just me working out of my house on the weekends. And I did end up losing the job in the unpredictable work environment. So I guess I did predict it. Yeah. And then all I kind of had was whatever freelance work I could pick up and tunnel shut. And it turns out that I was pretty okay at running an e-commerce business. And pretty soon I needed help. And a lot of my friends showed up needing jobs. So when I first started, I didn't want to, you know, I read all the punk rock scenes in my youth. I didn't want to just be like the capitalist boss extracting the labor from my friends who are my employees. So I try to set it up like this co-op system kind of where it's like you put in X amount of hours, you work at the business and then in exchange, you can sell whatever you want on the website and you keep like 100% profit from what you sell. And then, you know, it's like we just work together on all this And this sounded great in theory. This sounded wonderful in theory. Uh, In practice, it was a nightmare because what ended up happening is some people were better at knowing what customers wanted to buy than others. So you would have, for example, two people who both worked 20 hours a week and one of them made $1,000 and the other made 40 bucks. And it was just because the person who made $1,000 just knew what customers wanted to buy. And the person who made 40 bucks wasn't working any less, wasn't trying less hard. They just didn't have that knack. They didn't have that special skill. And I looked at that and was like, oh, this does not seem fair. This is, I have created a very unfair system here. I've created, 
some people would look at it and say it's like a meritocracy, but I was like, honestly, this is kind of ableist. Like I can't look at somebody who's sure. like, I made 40 bucks this week and I can't be like, did you try being smarter? Like, <laughs> what are you going to say? Like, God, no, it's awful. You're working and you deserve to be compensated for your labor. So that was my first attempt at trying to like run a fair business and it did not work. So then the second attempt that I made, I was like, okay, we're going to Karl Marx it. We're going to from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. So at this point, I think I probably was down to around two or three friends working for the company. And I sat down with everybody at a table, my dining room table. And I was like, everybody lay out how much money you need. What's going on in your life? Do you have family support? Do you have student loans? Do you have a car payment? Like we're all going to do this together. So we all kind of talked about what we needed. And I think in the end, because I had no family support and I had student loan payments and nobody else there had that same kind of setup, I ended up making something like 18 cents more per hour than everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Very in the weeds. And then, you know, this sounds like, yeah, this will work, right? No, this did not work either. No, this was a logistical nightmare. Because pretty soon people started looking at each other being like, well, do you really need that? Well, you have this other thing that I don't. I have a dog, so I have to pay extra to take care of my dog. Well, it's not your fault. Like, you know, like who who said you had to get a dog though? You didn't have to do that. So it's just the bickering and the pointing fingers and the, and the 18 cents. And it's like, like oh, that 18 cents. It was a nightmare. And I was like, I will give you the 18 cents. Do you want the 18 cents? And it was just catastrophic. So... One person even left the business. They were like, I'm out. And we were like, yeah, this got weird. So then finally I was like, okay, you know what? After that person left, this is too complicated. We're all just making the same amount of money per day we work. That's it. That's it. You know, I'm going to work five days a week. And the one person who was remaining this time was like, you're going to work four days a week. That's what the company can afford. And we're gonna make the same amount of money for everyday work. And it sounds silly, but it ended up being the easiest logistically. My payroll costs were the same every single week. I didn't have to worry about anything fluctuating. It was extremely fair. And you know, if I felt like I needed more money, I would work an extra day. Or if I felt like I didn't need more money, I would work less days. And it was just very, very easy to regulate and easy for the one remaining employee to regulate as well. And that was like something that we did for years, just me and her like, okay, we've got the flow. And she's actually the person that I went on most of my money journey with. She and I together working in like a spare room in my house would just listen to like finance books and finance podcasts and try to figure out how money worked together. So then, you know, as the business inevitably grew from that point, it was stable, right? It started growing. Everybody we brought on, it's just like, that was the arrangement. And it seems like it should be some like epiphany. I say this in the book, like, oh, there would be some finance epiphany about how special this was. But no, literally, I was just tired. My other ideas weren't working. And this was really easy bookkeeping math. This was just so easy. And it just felt fair. So yeah, next thing you know, we've got 13 employees at the company. And I'm the legal owner, although we do have an equity agreement. Being the legal owner makes it easier to access financing for a company, which is why we're not a proper worker co-op. And also some people at the business don't want to work or co-op set up. It wouldn't work for them. They get really stressed out by the idea of business ownership. But instead we have this agreement like, hey, if the business ever sells for some reason, we're all going to get paid out equally based on the amount of work we put into this thing because that's what's fair. So yeah, that's kind of how we ended up on this model. And today I, as the owner, make the same amount of of money for a day work as our intern does. It's very radical, but it seems very simple and straightforward. How many people have reached out to you like on social or via email or anything? And how many people are replicating this model? I'm curious. So I do know of one company, definitely. I think they're called Oak and Willow. They're an organic cleaning supply company out of Canada. And I have seen a few other people just in my comments, like, hey, I just started a business that runs like this this year. And I haven't really followed up with them because they're not people who, who use social media for like their marketing tactics. But it is really cool to see because it is really simple. I call it kindergarten brain. We all know in our kindergarten brain, it's fair. We're all working the same amount of hours. Why wouldn't we get paid the same amount? So yeah, I love that more people are like, hey, kindergarten brain, this does make sense. I'm just going to do it this way. And I'm not sure what the formal count is, honestly. But I do know that people are kind of getting into it. And it's not like it's a revolution, right? But 
I think that right now in particular, there is a labor rights movement growing. For the first time in a long time, we see renewed union support. We see more people aware of the like egregious growing gap between like CEO pay and average worker pay, the stagnation of low-wage workers' income overall. So, you know, I think the timing's right for it. And I think it does sound appealing to people because it is simple and it does seem so obvious. So Madeline, you've gone on quite a journey with your finances. You've gone from really not knowing how to navigate a system to now uplifting your community, right? Paying people a living wage, also helping your employees with the path to home ownership. What do you still struggle with today when it comes to finances, like from both a philosophical and practical perspective? Uh, Okay, well, philosophically, it's really easy. I hate money. I hate it. And I will tell anybody who will listen how much I hate money. I hate it. I don't think money should exist. I think that money is like an intermediary between people, workers, production, and the recipients of goods and services. And it sounds silly when you say it. People are like, oh, you can't be serious. But it also sounds silly when you say, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to pay everybody exactly the same amount. And, you know, it just works. And I think sometimes philosophically, we forget to be creative about our problem-solving approaches like to the world, right? Like, I think that money is a problem. And you'll hear people colloquially say things like money's the root of all evil, you know, or even in the Bible, it's like, it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. We know it, but we're just like not able or we don't have the energy or we feel like it's impossible to imagine different systems. So yeah, philosophically, definitely, I just hate it. I just hate it. I hate the money. Logistically, definitely my biggest issue with finance personally, is that uh, I have ADHD. So I struggle with impulse spending. So a lot of my personal budgeting when I was at my brokest to now, a lot of my personal budgeting revolved around uh, making it literally impossible for me to impulse spend. I called it money bondage. I put all of my money in these different bank accounts that took like three days to transfer. So I couldn't auto like transfer things impulsively to buy something. I like cut up my credit cards and left them at home you know, I did all of these very precise things. And to this day, I still struggle with impulse spending. That's something that realistically is always going to be a part of me. I feel like I have such a good hold on my finances, but all it takes is one person saying, do you want to go to a restaurant? And I'm like, oh my God, you know, I do. You know, I want to, I want to go to that restaurant. The Ah." siren call of other people washing your dishes, huh? That's what I'll do it. I mean, I also have read some like radical, like leftist zines that are like going to restaurants is evil. And when I read it, I was like, oh, no, couldn't be. No. But then I read a rebuttal zine that was like restaurants exist in socialism too. It's not that that's the problem. It's capitalism you hate. I was like, thank you. Thank you. My precious restaurants are safe. But yeah, from the, from the work financial standpoint, dealing with money when running a business, because we are now a multi-million dollar business uh, annually in terms of sales. It's really uh, the market system that I have an issue with. Competing on the free market is very challenging because it means that you're not able to focus on the things you care about. Like I'm a clothing designer. I want to be able to design things people like that bring them joy. And I can't do that because uh, the way you make money on the market system is by marketing yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of my time and energy and attention goes to marketing. And I feel like that's a disservice sometimes to the consumer, to myself, right? As a creative person. And also sometimes to the products, because there are certain things that uh, I believe in. For example, this is probably not going to make sense, except for to anybody who's really into like clothing stuff. Uh, But like, I love secondhand clothing. That's why we do it. The secondhand clothing portion of the business is not profitable. The vintage, it's, we do, we make nothing off of that. We lose money every quarter on that. But it's something I believe in because there's so much secondhand clothing in the world. And sometimes all you need to do is pull it out of literally a pile on the ground in a warehouse where it's about to be converted to industrial rags. That's what rag house does. Look at it and be like, I can clean this. I can mend this. I can put this on a model with a nice white background. And I can show somebody that like, you don't need to buy something brand new. This already exists. We can use this. So, you know, there's kind of that element to it. But also when it comes to the new clothing, I think about new clothing like it's secondhand already. Like when I make something, I'm not thinking about the first person who buys it. I'm like, what about the second person who owns it? The third person who owns it? It's going to end up in a thrift store. I want somebody to see it and it's still going to be in good enough condition that they buy it where it doesn't end up on the warehouse floor with the forklift converting it to industrial rags. And because I think that way, I like to design with uh, synthetic fibers because 
you know, synthetic fibers last a long time. They last 10 times as long as organic fibers. And a lot of people think synthetic fibers, like, oh no, it's so bad for the planet. And you can have these long conversations with people who are also clothing yards. We can be like, well, the amount of water it takes to produce cotton, you know, and you can go back and forth. And, and what I land on is that I like synthetic fibers because they last a long time. Because if I make a sweater, I only have to make the sweater once and it can last five generations, right? Rather than making five generations worth of sweaters. But because of the marketing aspect of the business, you have to either explain all of that to a consumer or you have to deal with consumers being like, why is it polyester? I hate it, you know? And you're like, oh no, please, I'm trying to do something. This is really thought out here. So I think that, yeah, that's part of the market system. You can't just do the thing that makes sense to you. You have to be able to market the thing to a consumer base. And that definitely affects your your management of your money. A lot of money is diverted to that. It's a lot of writing, like the consumer trend kind of waves, especially in fashion. The better you do one year, the worse you're going to do the next because of the whims of the market. So yeah, my personal issues, definitely the impulse funding and my business finance issues, writing the market and just being part of the whole marketing cycle. Do you view your, I mean, maybe this is a really ignorant question and it's obvious, but do you view the interactions you have and the content that you make on TikTok that marketing for your company? Or does it feel more like, I want to just express this and get it out there? Like I need to just say something. So, okay. I actually try really hard to make my personal TikTok not marketing for my brand. So my brand has its own marketing. It's got its own Instagram. It's got its own TikTok. And on my personal page, I like to not talk about work because, you know, I like a place I can go where I'm not just my job. And I think lots of people feel that way. So I do try to keep my personal TikTok content, just personally talk about my political beliefs. I talk about my ethics. I do talk about the general business structure because it is appealing to people and they're interested. But like, I make a point not to say the name of the brand. I think I've said the name of my brand on my personal TikTok maybe twice in three or four years. Huh, you know, so very, yeah, very infrequent. And, and that's intentional as well. But I think that's more of just like a managing my brain kind of thing. Like, and, and this goes for my employees too. Like what I tell them, what I tell myself, like, at the end of the day, like television is just a job. Like we're not a cult. We're not a family. It's just a job. We show up, we do our work, we provide the goods and services in exchange for the money and the money we use to live a good life. Not a great life, not an exorbitant life, just a good, nice life, you know? And that's it. That's the whole arrangement. The job doesn't need to be your world. It ideally isn't something that you should think about when you leave the door. Like the job is the thing that allows you to live your life. It shouldn't become your life. And I really try to practice that in my own head as well. It's a little harder up there, but. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing to labor. There's elements of it that is free labor because I do view it as the price point is free, right? If somebody wanted to hear you and I have a conversation about finances, how did you overcome your struggles? The price point is, is free. It's your time to listen to this podcast. Sure. Ads get jammed into your ear, but you could fast forward through that. But yeah, I'm just curious on your thoughts on creating for free, making content for free for the benefit of others? Yeah, so I kind of separate how I relate to content based on the platform, definitely. For TikTok, originally, it was something I did for fun. And then as I started doing it, sometimes it does feel like free entertainment that you're providing for people. The times it really starts to feel like that, like unpaid labor, is when there's like something just stressful happening because you're engaged in such like a feedback loop with your followers. When you have a follower, for example, who wants to nitpick one thing or do like a whataboutism that you're like, this is not in good faith. Like you were just trying to start an altercation or anything like that. That's when it really feels like unpaid labor. So like this stopped being fun. I was doing this for you for free. I was giving you free entertainment and you're not respecting that. And you're trying to extract more from me. You know, if you don't like what I'm saying, just scroll past. Don't, that's it. That's how I engage with media. It's free. Somebody is doing free labor for you by providing you with entertainment. And then obviously the more political end is who is profiting off of me doing this labor for free, for fun in my head. It's TikTok, TikTok, it's Instagram, it's all these platforms. They are the ones making money off of me. And I have historically been very, very bad at monetizing an online presence. Up until last month, I had made $0 off of my online presence. Um, Personally, my personal accounts. Finally, one of my friends was like, I'm going to help you because she's really good at like management and things like this. And she managed to get me two paid brand deals. So now I have made $4,500 <laughs> off of my social media presence. 
thank you very much. But that's it. You know, I don't make a lot of money off of it. So it does. It does feel like unpaid labor, especially when it gets, when the world of the internet gets a little bloodthirsty, which they do. And I've always known that there's an inevitable pendulum swing. Everybody loves you, then everybody hates you, and everybody loves you again. And then everybody's like, no, we've been loving that person too. Let's hate them again. And you're just along for the ride. And you're like, oh God, I don't even know if I want to be here. And I always say some days I just want to throw my phone into the ocean. Like that's liberation to me. I'm just like, yeah, just get rid of it. Um, so yeah, that for sure. But my podcast, I do for free. We do Patreon bonus content that is paid for, but the actual main podcast is free and there's no ads on the podcast studio. It's pick me up. I'm scared. It's the podcast. And literally it is, I have been told just like a neurodivergent info dump. Like it's something I do because I am compelled to do it. Like I have to, I'm like, no, everybody needs to know about the secret war in Laos right now. And if everybody doesn't know, I'll probably die. So (laughs) that is something that's definitely more fulfilling for me. It doesn't feel like free labor. It feels like having a conversation I really want to have with people. And that might be because there's not really as much of an opportunity for back and forth. I don't have to put in any more than I want to put in. I feel like I have a lot of agency over how much I'm doing. And the podcast definitely feels more like a hobby to me versus the TikTok, which sometimes, yeah, it does feel like unpaid labor. Yeah. And just, you know, it's just interesting navigating this space and being in it myself because I'm looking around and I'm like, I mostly like it's fun to create, but wow, some of you guys are really, really prolific. And I just don't understand where it all comes from. You have boundless energy and uh, perspectives to share. And I do, I definitely appreciate it. Madeline, I've taken up way too much of your time, but I want to, I want to close out this interview with just a few rapid fire questions, if that's okay with you. Yes, I will try not to be verbose. It will be a challenge. (laughs) Okay. Is there anything you purchased that feels like maybe to the naked eye is frivolous, but for you is money well spent? Yes. I have two things. I have, um, well, one was a gift. It's a pair of R13 boots. They're apparently $1,300 boots that my friend got me. I told her she was crazy for buying them for me. I wear them every single day and have for years. They were a great investment of her money, not mine, her money. And then the thing I actually spent my own money on is an indoor hydroponic garden. And it was $450 and it was well spent. I harvest from it every single day when I eat food. It's really small, apartment size. Love it. Sounds delicious. What's one piece of advice, financial or otherwise, that you'd give to your younger self? Get a retirement account as soon as possible. It sounds silly. It sounds ridiculous. Just do it. Just even if you can only put $5 in there a month, just open up an IRA. If you don't have a 401k through your work, those are the two different types of retirement accounts, IRA, 401k that people use the most. Open up an IRA. You can do it on an app. I have an app that you know I used before our work set up 401ks and just five bucks. The sooner you start saving for your retirement, the easier it is going to be. The power of compounding returns on investment is your friend and investing is the closest option we have to public ownership in a system of capitalism. So, you know, invest in your own retirement. Start now. If you think you don't need to start now, just start now. Start now. Co-signing. Love that perspective. Thank you, Madeline. Did you have any financial superstitions growing up? No. <laughs> Literally, no. My dad uh, was the kind of person who owed everybody in town money all the time. And nobody seemed mad at him about it. They're just like, I love your dad. Next time you see him, tell him he owes me $50. And I'll be like, I don't know you, but okay, I'm seven. No, money was very much not considered in my upbringing. It was very, it comes, it goes. Who knows what happens? It's in the ether. We don't think about it. Ha ha. So... No, I got nothing. No thoughts about money. That's probably my initial problems. I was like, oh my God, I have to think about this? Like what? (laughs) This invisible force governing my material existence. Yeah, absolutely. All right, last one for you. I mean, you wrote a whole book about this, but which one are you going to share? Do you have any financial fumbles that you can look back on and laugh at? Yes. Uh, Oh my God, the worst one. When I moved to LA, I got a job as a personal assistant. That was my first job here and I needed a car. So I went to a repo lot which the ethics of that, I hadn't even considered. I was like, I need a cheap car. I'm going to go here. I showed up. I literally pointed at the first one on the lot. And I was like, this one seems fine. And the guy was like, do you want to test drive it or look around? I was like, not really. I just, I just need one. This is one. Uh, The car was $8,000, which was so much money to me. The most expensive car I'd ever had before that was $3,000. I didn't have $8,000. So I took out a loan for the entire $8,000 and the interest rate was absurd. It was like 25%. It was like buying a car on a credit card, basically. The car broke an hour later. And for the next three years, I spent, I think, a total of $17,000 in repairs on a high interest credit card because I had no money 
trying to keep this terrible, terrible, awful 2004 Volvo on the road where it didn't want to be. It just wanted to go car peacefully heaven. into the night. Yes. To car heaven. <laughs> it needed car heaven. And I was like, you will stay on the streets of LA, dear God. And I will max out this credit card making it happen. Terrible idea. Should have oh. cut my losses. Should have done more research. Biggest waste of money ever. And honestly, that credit card debt, just from re- repairing that car, in, it impacted my life financially for over a decade. It was very hard to pay off and get out of. So I hate that car. <laughs> if I see that car on the street, it's on site. I'm going to fight that car. I'm going to try to punch it. I hate that car. Oh, well, as entertaining as that sounds, I would definitely would love to see it. I guess the takeaway there is, yeah, don't like buy a car in a state of panic off of a repo lot. Do a little bit of research, calm your nervous system and uh, cut your losses. Cut your losses. The sunk cost fallacy. Yes. I could end this on anything. Don't fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy. Just because you spent money on something doesn't mean you should keep spending more. And with that, Madeline, for the folks that want to follow along, I mean, you have your book, I Survived Capitalism, and all I got was this lousy t-shirt available, I'm sure, wherever books are sold. Yes, and, very uh, available. Where can the folks follow along on the uh, on the internet? If you would like to follow me on TikTok, I am Madeline, M-A-D-E-L-I-N-E underscore Pendleton, like the wool company. I am the same on Instagram, I believe, but no underscore. And on Twitter, I am Jean Gray, G-E-A-N-G-R-E-I-G-E. And the company is Tunnel Vision. And if you search shop Tunnel Vision on absolutely anything, it will come up. Amazing. Thank you so much, Madeline. Thanks so much. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening to Weird Finance. If you like the show, please express that like by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. 
it really does help us out a lot. And if you'd like to receive even more content from me, you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Nerd Letter. Each week, I'll send you a short email of things I've read and recommend. Sign up for it at thehellyagroup.com. Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, an iHeartMedia production, and just would not be possible without the help of many wonderful, caring, hardworking, and talented folks like my producer, Ramsey Yunt. He produced, edited, did some sound design, and he even sang a little bit on this episode. And to my new friends, Annie and Samantha from the Stuff Mom Never Told You podcast, thank you so much for lending your voices for our special PSA. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my dear, dear friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker. If you have any comments, questions about money, suggestions, or you want to be a part of the show, give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's 833-275-7226. Or send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. That's it. We'll catch you here next week. In the meantime, take care. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.